on this episode of The James Quandall Show. You're never going to beat out the people who that's what they obsess and love about. And on the other hand, if you love podcasting, you love doing that, you have such an advantage over the the businesses and the bloggers who are like, I feel like I need to start a podcast because everybody does. You have an advantage in that arena, and so you need to run that way as much as you can. So there is a way to do it. We just have to keep fighting until you nail it down. On today's episode with Bob Loddick, we discuss how to make more, save more, and give more money than you can ever imagine. In his early 20s, Bob found himself at his breaking point, overwhelmed by debt and stranded 1,000 miles from home with only $7 to his name. Fast forward to today, Bob's reached a level of financial freedom he never dreamed possible, owning a paid-off house by age 31 and even reaching his family's personal giving goal of $1 million by age 40. Listen to learn how to start giving more money to others and how Bob's family is currently giving away over 40% of their income. We also discussed how to evaluate risk, value your passions, and how to start a business of your own. You learn why you should stop comparing yourself to others and how you should be playing in a completely different ball game altogether. Also, why it's important to say no to the flesh and discover how to be successful in taking a full day of rest each week. We discussed all of this and much, much more in this episode. So please enjoy. I just want to go back to what we were talking about before we started recording. Um, and it was about fears. And in 2016, I quit my job at Best Buy. I was there for almost a decade in the corporate leadership world and moved from Michigan to South Carolina and decided it was a great time to start a business and for the first time. And I did have a lot of planning that went into it as in I had a year of runway. I'm like, okay, I could live unemployed for a year, but a couple months in, the, the money started draining. And I'm like, I don't feel very comfortable with this. But in your book, if I would have had your book in 2016, I think I would have made some better choices uh, overall. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, I applaud the bold move, um, and it seems like it's worked out. So I'd love to hear more about that. But, but yeah, like I mean, you're like you're talking about that one particular exercise, which I didn't come up with. I just put it in the book um, this fear setting exercise. That I- idea of just kind of, you know, identifying the fear, identifying the worst case scenario, like the worst thing that can happen, and then trying to um, put some numbers to that, and like trying to like identify that, like just shining a light on those fears, like really just reveals them for what they are. And oftentimes they're not as big of a deal as, um, as, as we feel, you know, like if you think about in the history of humanity, like the fears, the things that we're afraid of today, you know, if we go back a couple hundred years ago, like people literally were fearing for their lives for many, many things that they were going through. Whereas you're in a situation, and again, I'm not making light of what you're doing, but Worst case scenario, it's like maybe, you know, you move in with some friends or some family for a little bit, sleep on the couch a little bit, which you still have heat. You still probably have food. You're probably not going to starve to death. Like That was what I did do. So I did have the runway for a year of saving. So I, I lived below my means for a long time before doing this and moved back in with my parents. As embarrassing as that was in my late 20s to really kind of it didn't kill me. Didn't I did kill that you, right? to really put away as much money as possible <laughs> so I could take this risk. But like you said, the worst case scenario for me was, yeah. okay, I had almost 20 years in retail experience at that time, 10 years at Best Buy. I could get a job at any retailer, even if it was an entry-level position. I could go in the next yeah. day with a resume and get a job. Even worse than that was I could move back to Michigan and move right back in with my parents. Like That would be embarrassing, but I could yeah. do it. 
And I even said, well, I love camping. Like, if I had to, like, sleep on a bench for a, a few days, like, it wouldn't be the end of the world. Like, the benches where I live are really <laughs> nice. They're right on the water. Like, it's 70 degrees <laughs> here most of the time. Like, it wouldn't be horrible place to, yeah. to do that. Well, yeah. And the other important component here is what's the upside? Like, because that's the downside. And so you get an accurate view of that. But then, like, what is the upside potential? And it's like, how much satisfaction would you get if you actually began to achieve a little bit of what you're going after, a little bit of those goals? Like, and then oftentimes, I think we so greatly underestimate the upside and the potential of where things could go. And that's when, when you see the kind of the disproportionate reward risk thing. It's like, hmm, maybe I should take that leap, you know? 100% was what was driving me was the potential reward. Yeah. What drove this entire thing was I had this mentor who I was working for who was amazing, one of the smartest men I've ever worked for, a retailing expert. He was like the Sam Walton. He retired at 65, and I was mid-20s, and I said, do I want to spend the next 40 years of my life doing what he did? I love him. He's an excellent mentor. I learned so much from him. But the answer was just no, I yeah. don't want to do that. And what did I want instead? I wanted flexibility. I didn't want calls in the middle of the night. I wanted to be able to travel. I wanted to be able to do all of these things yeah. that I could not do in that job. My days off, I just laid on the couch and watched Netflix for the entire day because I was exhausted. That was yeah. not life for me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, I res also resonated with your story of the corner, like being in, wanting a corner office. Like climbing the corporate ladder, even if it took 10, 20 years, whatever it took to get the corner office, like what in you switched to take you off that, what I would call the normal trajectory that most people are dreaming of to this self-employed hustle, very difficult, not easy, a lot of potential for failure. Yeah, I mean, like you, like I, I was doing a little bit of evaluation, self-evaluation, and kind of looking at the people who were 10 years beyond where I was going to be and, and what that path looked like. Um, but I didn't have the guts to make the jump myself, and so I kind of got kicked out of the boat. Uh, and <laughs> so in my case, like I, I was going down this path of trying to climb the corporate ladder and doing an abysmal job at it, just doing a terrible <laughs> job, and found myself just kind of pigeonholed and stuck in this dead-end career, um, meanwhile, watching a lot of my peers just kind of climb as I felt stuck and trapped, and it was it was really difficult. But but anyway, but I was so defeated and kind of beat down that I don't think I would have had the boldness to actually step out and do what you did and, like, start the business. So um, I kind of had to get laid off. Um, our company got bought out by a bigger company, um, and my entire department got eliminated, and basically I got laid off. And in that layoff is kind of when I started this business. Uh, that was kind of my transition out. Um, but yeah, it's it's crazy. Like I was definitely headed on that path, headed in that direction. And and had I been a little more successful, I might have stayed with it. But um, but I was always always had like this attraction, this allure to a lot of things you're talking about. Just a lot of that freedom and that flexibility. And um, one thing in particular that I really loathed about the corporate world that I was in was the. Um, uh, I don't know, just the squashing of all creativity. And so, because I've always been a fairly creative person, but I found myself after five, six years in that environment, just I had no creativity anymore because it was all like pushed out of me. It's like you wear the exact same thing every day. You talk the same way. You act the same as everyone around you. And if you don't, you're going to be fired. And It's difficult to be different. 
And when you're self-employed or you're trying to live debt-free or you're trying to pay cash for things or you're trying to give away your money, all those things for the majority of the people in your life, if you're not extremely fortunate, I guess, will surprise them. And you won't get a lot of encouragement necessarily. They'll go, why are you doing that? Like when I told my family I was quitting my job, they're like, well, for what? Like, well, yeah. I want, I just want something different. They did not understand. They still don't know what I do. Like I have, they have no clue what I do for a living, which is fine. I got a lot of uh, those too. I've been at it for 15 years, same boat. <laughs> so like, they don't know what I do, but it's really hard. Like, how do you find people to surround yourself with when you're trying to be different? Cause yeah. it's hard. Yeah. And it's, and it's, and what you said is so true. Like I remember going to one of my mentors, um, financial mentors, who I really, really looked up to and he taught me so much. But one of the things when I set out to kind of start my own business, he said, this is a terrible idea. This is just a terrible idea. You shouldn't do it. And which is so difficult because there was so much wisdom that he offered me that was good and right. But that particular advice was just wrong. Like I was supposed to do this. And he had his own fears and insecurities where just made him feel like this was terrible. And he had to tell me that. And so that's difficult just sorting through that. But But anyway, to get to your question, I think you know, the beautiful thing about the internet and the age that we live in is we're not no longer confined to our small town in Michigan or in Missouri or wherever. uh, And just the people around us, like we can build community, we can connect with other people on the other side of the world or in South Carolina and Nashville, you know, whatever the thing might be. um, So that we can have somebody in our corner, you know, um, encouraging us and helping us realize that we're not crazy. You know, that's a great point. That's helped me on my journey is just following different blogs and other people who have done it before me. And I remember when I first, oh, this is so embarrassing, this story. There was this real estate tycoon in my town. He owns like a quarter of the town, it feels like. And it's a small town. But we met, I was renting his apartment and we met for drinks at a place on the water. And it was beautiful. And I remember sitting there going, he's like, well, what are you looking to do? And I'm like, well, ideally, like, I just work a couple hours a week and just, like, enjoy the rest of the week. And I didn't realize yeah. at the time how silly that must have sounded. Because <laughs> now I work more than I ever did when I worked in retail. Yeah. But I'm doing what I love. And so yeah. it really does, it isn't work anymore. Like, I yeah. would have conversations like this with you every day, all day. Yeah. No questions asked. Yeah, it doesn't feel like work. We're having a conversation. We, I think we both enjoy this. It's like, yeah, it's great. I, I had it wrong. I had this idea that flexibility and freedom meant doing no work. Yeah. But I actually talked to this guy. I was reading uh, Christ- Christianity Today, and there was this financial guy that was quoted. And I got in touch with him. And he actually got on a phone call with me. And he said, you know, James... Like I outlined my plan of not working at all and like having all this passive income. Yeah. And he's like, you know, in the garden before the fall, Adam and Eve still worked. Like they had a job to do. They weren't just like, you know, eating coconuts and taking long walks around the garden. Like they were there to work. And that was the light bulb moment. Like, okay, maybe work is good. It's just doing the right work. Yeah. No, that's so good. I mean, it's interesting you say that. Like, because I, uh, so I started my journey kind of into entrepreneurship in 2008, shortly after Tim, Tim Ferriss's 4-Hour Workweek came out. And so that book heavily influenced how I built my business. And I ended up 
pretty much just following it to a T. And a few years later, um, you know, I had a business where literally I was working less than four hours a week, completely passive. And I had achieved the four hour work week. And I was excited about that for a little bit. But to be honest, James, like six months into that, maybe a year into that, like I was pretty miserable. Like it's not, you know, I don't know. Maybe there are people who can like just sit on the beach or the couch all day and like be happy and content. But for me, like that was kind of a miserable existence Um, because I didn't feel like I had any purpose anymore because I have this machine that's making money, which everybody is after. Everybody's like, that's the dream. I just want that. And it's like, and I'm all for passive income. And I think that's great. But within that, like allow that passivity to do its thing, but you still need something to put your hand to. You still need some purpose to get up each morning or things get weird real fast. I was so lost at that period having all this time it was really bad to the point where i'm like i should just go back to best buy like i was happier there like this dream of long walks and reading all day and just meeting up with people in the middle of the day it didn't it didn't last that long if you're not creating something beautiful but why like what drove you to the blog like in 2008 that was there weren't no one was reading blogs in 2008. Maybe it was just the beginning of that. Like how yeah. why did you think that would work? Like <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, man. I, I have no idea. Um I mean, so it's funny cuz yeah, in 2007 is when I started this blog and essentially I remember being at dinner with a friend and explaining to him cuz at this point I was a mess financially and like starting to learn, starting to read some books and magazines about money to figure out how to move forward and be a little bit mess of less of a mess. And at the same time, I was reading the Bible and just my mind was blown that the Bible actually talked about money. It's like, whoa, this, this old book from thousands of years ago, like actually talks about money and has somewhat relevant advice for today. This is crazy. And so as I'm going through this journey, I was telling this friend, I'm like, you know what? I started a website when I was in high school. Like, I think I want to start a website where I write an article each day and talking about what I'm learning. And he's like, that's a blog, man. I'm like, what's a blog? Tell me more. What's a blog? And so he goes on to explain what's a blog. I'm like, that's perfect. That's exactly what I want to do, you know? And uh, and so at that point, I started a blog. And to be honest, like, I, at that point, I don't think I had any aspirations of it ever turning into a full-time income. Like, I, I had just realized that AdSense actually paid you a few cents every time somebody clicked on it. And so I'm like, wait, I could put some AdSense on there and make a little bit of money. And I remember the first seven cents I made, like running around the living room. I was like so excited. But, uh, you know, I don't think I had any aspirations that it would actually turn into anything. And that was kind of the funny thing for me when I got laid off. You know, at that point, I was making $100 a month from the blog um, in 2008. And I remember going to look for another job. And as I was doing that, I just sensed God, like, say, no. I don't want you to look for another job. I'm like, uh, what am I going to do? That seems great. Like, I need to. Everybody's going to look for a job. All my coworkers are getting laid off. We're all looking what for a job. What did that feel like specifically? Because that, did it, was it just like a, some kind of a no motivation to look for a job? Or what did you feel like there was like a resistance? I don't know. Just like that, that sense in my heart that, you know, just, you know, kind of like conviction, kind of like, yeah, just like this feeling, this knowing in my heart that something's not right as I was stepping out to look for that. And I and I just sensed him, you know, I, I wish it was an audible voice where it would have been like, God or Bob, do not go get a job, become a full-time blogger. But it was very much like, you know, in my heart that I sensed that. And then like, that was the other part of it was I just sensed that he wanted me to kind of work on the blog full-time, which again, just felt absolutely crazy. I'm like, this makes no sense. This makes no sense. And everyone around me, like I wouldn't even tell anyone what I was doing because... 
you know, aunts and uncles and coworkers are like, where, where, where have you applied? What kind of job are you going to get? And I'm like, I'm, I got, you know, I, I was so embarrassed because I'm like, I feel crazy that I'm going to try to go be a full-time blogger. But the coolest thing, James, like over, so I set out and did this and my wife, Linda, got on board, which that's a whole nother like miracle, like that she didn't just think I was completely crazy and nuts. And, but she got on board. She felt like it was the right move. And so, um, you know, I went from making $100 a month with that blog to nine months later making more with it than my day job. Like, and then six months after that, we had doubled it. Like, it was just mind blowing. And we had a short runway, you know, maybe six months. Like, I kind of set out, I'm like, all right, God, we got six months here. After that, it's like, I got to go find a job. We have no more money. And, um, and the whole thing kind of played out like, yeah, just crazy. So, what would have it looked like if you would have accepted? That I think you mentioned in the book that you had a job offer that was basically double what you were making yes. before. How on earth did you turn that down? I mean, hundred dollars a month on the blog job that's double what you were making before. That was one of the hardest I think decisions I've ever made in my life because because I felt like all right, God, I stepped out in faith to do this crazy thing that I feel like you're asking me to do, and then a couple weeks later, I get like you said this dream offer from somebody who I looked up to so much, who was a mentor doing work I would have loved, again, coming out of a job that I hated and was not good at, to work I would have loved, work I would have been good at, paying double what I was earning at my other day job. Like It looked like this is the blessing on a silver platter, like run with this. Uh, and that was so hard turning that down. But at the same time, now I can look back and see that that would have been like such a big mistake on so many levels. And I would have missed out on so many blessings and opportunities and helping and impacting a lot of people, like so many different things that would have been, um, yeah, just the short end of the stick. And I think that it would have been okay if you went that path. Like you would have lived a comfortable life. You yep. would have kind of fit in. It would have been easier to explain to your family what you did for a living and all those awkward conversations. And I think looking back, it's like, oh, well, I could have been okay either way, but man, am I glad I went this way. Yeah, the good is always the enemy of the best, right? It's like, that's what it was. It, um, Yeah, it was something really, really good, but it wasn't the best. And were you married at that point? Yeah, yeah I was two years in maybe. I feel like having Linda on your side through that is that's the that's the best thing you could have possibly had in that scenario because without a, a, a without a supporting spouse there you just would have taken the job. Yeah, 100% because yeah, I, I mean and I've talked to people in similar enough situations where they they want to do something and the spouse is just completely against them and it's like I have no, I, I can't imagine how I could have ever done it if she just thought it was a terrible idea and thought I was crazy and whatever else. So yeah, having that spousal support is, it's one of the greatest blessings of my life is having, yeah, her as a wife. Like it's just, I hit the, I hit the jackpot. When you were courting your wife, was this type of partnership a trait you admired? Like was that something that, that being able to work together, like go through the hard times like this, like was that? Something you saw in her? Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, because, you know, because I had dated a you know few different girls kind of before her. Um, and, and I had fresh memories of some of the things that um, weren't right with some of those relationships. And, and one of the things that stuck out, you know, to me about Linda was just her, um, I don't know, kind of her faithfulness. Uh, just towards not think, things that didn't matter. I mean, so, you know, one specific thing, I remember dating a girl who was just obsessed with the size of the wedding ring that she was going to get. And I remember just thinking, 
you just seem more interested in how big of a wedding ring I can buy you than than us in our relationship. And so, and Linda was just so different. Um, and, you know, and Linda likes nice things and Linda <laughs> likes nice jewelry and whatever else. Like, So it's not about that, but it was about her priorities were um, just better positioned. And that was a big tell to me that I think she's the right one. I think that that in this book, there could have been more of that in choosing your spouse. I think it's one of, it could be one of the most important decisions we'll ever make yeah. if we're going to make it or break it financially. Yeah. Um, and it's not about, there's the whole concept of uh, savers and spenders. It's not even about that. It's yeah. it's just about having someone who you can work together to achieve a common goal. And yeah. you guys have clearly done that. Has there, and I didn't prep you on talking about marriage, so... Uh, I love talking about uh, it. Let's keep going. I, I, I'm curious if, like, how you together got on the same page with a lot of, of these things, because it's not easy to do. Yeah. No, I mean, like, the thing you just mentioned about uh, spenders and savers, I think there's this important... Yeah, I just see so many couples who think that, all right, I'm the saver, my spouse is a spender, um, and whether overtly or internally, they, they think... I'm right, they're wrong. And I think that's one of the worst things you can do. And I think, honestly, I think your marriage is has the potential to be so much better if you both are very different financially. If you both understand each other's strengths and weaknesses, if you, and if you both can do that, like there's so much power there. And so that was one thing that we did not start out that way. But as we both came to understand our strengths um, and especially me, because I tend to be the saver. I tend to be more the mathy one. I tend to be the one who's whatever driving more of our financial stuff. And Linda tends to be more of the let's have fun and let's go spend money and blah, blah, blah. My life, as I've kind of yielded to her strengths, which might not be the math, it might not be organizing the budget or whatever, but her strength in terms of understanding the purpose of money, and that's not just to save it all up for retirement, and that it's actually okay to spend some money to, to enjoy life. Like, my life is so much better because I've allowed her to influence me. And at the same time, you know, her being a spender, like, she's allowed me to influence her, and so she's going to be in a better financial position than if I wasn't around, just because of that. So... So I think that's been so helpful and beneficial for us. And that would be my encouragement to anybody getting married, you know, or who is married. Like if you can tap into that, like search for the strengths in your spouse rather than just looking at all the things that are wrong in your eyes about them. The scenario you mapped out is exactly my marriage. I am the the math guy, the budgeter, the yeah. spreadsheet junkie, the saver, yeah. um, and Emily, my wife, um, doesn't care about the math as much and is more of a spender. Um, yeah. And when we were making this transition to self-employed and all of this, we had to lean more on my strengths, the yeah. budgeting, the saving, the frugalness. I'm extremely frugal and thrifty also. Yeah. Um, I ask for a deal on everything. Like I don't buy anything <laughs> unless I feel like I got a deal on it. It's almost <laughs> embarrassing. Now that we're better off, like we're making more now than we ever have, but I'm still stuck in that. Yeah. It's, it's not a mindset of abundance. It's almost a mindset of scarcity, which is insane. Yeah. Yeah. How do I lean into her strengths now? Like we did my part. Now how do we yeah. like get back into that? Yeah. No, I mean, one of the things that helped me, uh, this is something that I... So I just turned 40, well, I'm 40, actually 41, but when I turned 40, 
like I, I wasn't really expecting a midlife crisis or anything, and I don't, I didn't have a midlife crisis. But what I did have, something in my brain, all of a sudden realized, wait a minute, okay, you're forty now. Um, what happened? Like sixty is not that far away, and at least in my mind now, sixty is like whatever old like in my mind. Yeah, you're now, closer 60. to sixty than twenty. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, um, and. Like, I know some people who are 60 who don't really travel much anymore because they feel kind of old and their kids are grown and gone. And and it just dawned on me. It's like, all right, so we have some money saved up for retirement. And I've done a good job the last decade kind of doing that and kind of getting out of the situation and thinking long term. But I need to start taking advantage of now. Like, I have three little kids in the house. And do I want to just save up another whatever, uh, $100,000 or something down in the future? Or do I want to take advantage of some of that now to make memories with my kids now, to go on some trips now, to do some of these things now that I will never be able to do again in my life? And the clock is ticking. You know, I mean, I'm hope, hopeful that I'm healthy and can travel till I'm 90 years old or something. But the reality is, even in my 80s, if I'm super healthy, the way that I will travel and do things with my kids is going to be very different than it is now. So I have this short window to take advantage of this time that is going to be gone forever. And I think when I turn 60, I'm going to be thankful that I spent some of that money on this era uh, rather than just saving up whatever, another couple hundred thousand dollars for then when I can't do as much. Does that make sense? It's, that this makes is perfect a, sense. This is a lesson that, I mean, it sounds like you might need to hear, but a lot of people don't need to hear this. I mean, your wife might not need to hear this. My wife doesn't need to hear it. But there are people like you and I who I do think need to hear that. Uh, and understand that transition point and when we need to make a switch. I struggle with this idea that, you know, you put money into retirement, you put money into retirement, you put money into retirement. At what point is that vehicle good now? Like, you know, in 40 years from now, at this point, whatever's in it, it's it's going to be enough. Like, can I now reallocate some of that money? Like, financial f- professionals don't talk about that very much, and it makes sense yeah. why they don't, because the majority of the people don't have enough money in their retirement but what what are your thoughts on that like if you get enough of a nest egg that over the next 40 years it's going to double five and a half six times on the s&p 500 like is do you stop at a point and then or what do you do you know this is such a personalized question because everybody's different in terms of what helps them sleep at night where you know where their level of contentment is like how how comfortable they are, you know, stepping down from their lifestyle and what, the, you know, there's a lot of different factors at play here. Um, one book I'll recommend, though, that um, that I did not write, that I think is a really great book for this discussion is called um, Die With Zero. And it's just about this idea of um, just like what, we're, what you're talking about exactly, about like how to uh, save enough for retirement to cover that, but then also to enjoy life in the interim. And not to not to make this mistake of saving up millions of dollars for retirement and not being able to enjoy any of it, you know. And so, um, so I don't have the answers to this. I haven't figured it all out myself. But um, the thing that I've kind of landed on is that I've put more confidence in my ability to earn money and um, in the future than I used to. So, like when I was just starting out in my career, like I, I felt very clueless about what kind of salary I would be able to earn in the future and whether or not um, I'd be able to enough to be uh, make enough to pay the bills and all this. Like I just didn't know. And now that I'm whatever, 20 years into my career or something uh, and not that, you know, there aren't going to be ups and downs and I think there'll be downs and stuff like that. But I think my point is I have enough confidence in the future and my ability to earn money and find ways to earn money that 
I'm not super nervous about running out of money in retirement, you know? And it's like, and there's always an element of risk here, like, you know, becoming disabled or something like there, there's, there's components of risk and some of that can be offset by insurance. Um, but, but in general, I think it's, a, I view it as less of a risk than I did probably when I was 20 years old. And so, um, so that affects my decision personally a little bit, you know, and there might be people who feel the opposite, you know, but those are just a few, few things I'm thinking about with it all. As a Christian, I'm curious if you feel like it's filling the storehouses mm-hmm. with grain versus using it or giving it and yeah. have a desire to be a giver. And you quoted uh, R.G. Latorno in your book, and his book was unbelievable. Yeah. Um, I think it was uh, Moving Mountains. I can't. Yep. I think that's it, yeah. Moving Mountains, Moving Mountains and Men, I believe was what it was called. Yep. That book was unbelievable. And he, before he passed, was giving 90% of his, his wealth away. Yeah. And I remember reading the book, the years he'd be like, okay, God, I'm going to save this money and reinvest it in the business this year, and I'll give more next year off of that. He would have the worst business yeah. year whenever he did that. And it was interesting. And I, I was talking at breakfast with my wife about you and your book this morning, she said, "I hope he lives to 110, so he'll be giving, he'll be giving more yeah. away than he's making each year." And I'm like, "That's a that's a pretty funny thing. I'm going to make sure I tell him." Yeah, and so what you're referencing is in the book. I talk about how you know we're giving our age as a percentage of our income, which at this point is 41. percent uh, We started that 10 years ago, um, and so that's kind of been for us a good stretch. It's just kind of been a good framework to kind of adjust our giving because. Um, yeah, you because know, we reached a point where the 10% wasn't stretching us anymore um, because, you know, we've been 10% givers for a long time. Uh, and then jumping up to 31% was a big stretch. And we've had some years over the last 10 years where it's like, this was kind of a big stretch for us. And then other years where it's like, we could do it a little bit more comfortably. But, um, but yeah, like for us, it's like as believers, like I just think this is the eternal thing. This is the eternal impact. Like I don't, it's really short-sighted as an eternal being to only focus on this sliver of time that we're on earth. And so, and so anyway, so as that like affected my thinking, it's like, all right, so then what's the eternal perspective of financial success? And I think it's giving, I think it's giving because we get to impact people in the world, change their lives, improve their lives. And then on top of that, the Bible says that we store up treasures in heaven by giving. It's like, and I don't know what that means exactly, but there's something where we're going to get there we're going to be thankful that we gave because we could see the big picture, the long-term perspective. And so with all that in mind, it's like, yes, we still save for retirement. I don't think there's anything you know morally wrong at all for saving for the future. I think it's there's a biblical argument um, that it, that's wise to do, you know. Um, but on the other hand, like we're also continuing to stretch in our giving now um, without putting all of our trust in our savings, in our retirement, without trusting more in our ability to save than, you know, kind of God's uh, desire for us to give and kind of what he's called us to do. I am just so impressed with that and your ability to just go beyond the Joneses. I mean, we keep going back to that. It seems like that's sort of your DNA is to do it differently, your own way. Because 10%, Hey, that's great. Like that's that's uh that's that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's a um, it's a whole bunch. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. even 5% is a lot of money. Even 1% is is great. Like anything that people can do. And in your book you talked about 
um, assets under management, aka net worth, and your what did you call it? The giving what net was given is what we track. Yeah, that is such a cool idea. And then seeing it plotted side by side yeah. and the correlation between the two, you hear that all the time. You you know you read this successful person like maybe Susie Orman or Dave Ramsey or or someone like that, and they're like, oh yeah. As we gave, our income went up. And you're like, well, yeah, of course. Yeah. Like, you're Dave R- Ramsey. Like, yeah, you're, yeah. you're you know, 100 millionaire, whatever. Like, but to see it charted over the period of time, straight lines up to the right both ways is just unbelievable. No, and I, I literally just discovered that, like, probably less than a year ago. It was like, the book was almost done. And I... For some reason, just randomly, I'm like, huh, I wonder. <laughs> and, I, you know, because it's the same thing. I've always heard that, that, oh, if you give more, whatever, your income's going to go up with it, blah, blah, blah. But now, like, I have, you know, quantitative proof in front of me in my own life for the last decade. I'm like, that's crazy. Like, and especially when it should be the opposite. Like, mathematically, it's like we just increased our giving from 10 to 31%. Like, our net worth or AUM, like we call it, like that should go down. It should be less. It makes no sense that it's actually increased. You know, so um, yeah, it was mind blowing to me. We need to get a million people tracking those metrics. That and would be really cool. See it play out real time with yeah. all of this, and once and for all, just prove it. Because yeah. I'm a believer. I have tremendous faith, but it makes me pretty scared. It, it just makes me feel. <laughs> I mean, I, I, for me, it'd be like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give 10% or 15% of my money away, and I'm just not going to see it again. Like, yeah. And that's fine. Like, It's a sacrifice. Yeah. The money's gone. I'm giving it to a higher purpose. It's gone. But yeah. then it comes back more? Like, I, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, it's nuts. I mean, and, uh, you know, if you've been a Christian a while, like we all know and we've seen people who've kind of abused this idea and um, turned God into a slot machine type of thing. And it's like, and I don't, I don't believe that. I think God is beyond being manipulated by us and, and that whole thing. But but at the end of the day, like, you know, this is a pretty biblical idea. And like 2 Corinthians 9 is like a chapter that like the entire thing is talking about giving in the context of planting seeds. And it says, you know, that what you sow, you're going to reap. If you sow a little bit, you're going to reap a little bit. If you sow a lot, you're going to reap a lot. Um, and, you know, this concept could play out all throughout the Bible. And so, um, I don't know, you know, and we've spent the last 10 years watching what's happened and it's, yeah, it's crazy. Do you think you should wait to be debt free to, to give generously? No, no. I, uh, you know, and I, you know, I'll just give you again, some examples from our lives and, and again, and I'm not saying that in a, you're wrong if you don't, like, I, I'm just saying that, you know, if you're asking me what we would do, uh, I would lead with giving. And one example of that, like when we were first trying to pay off all of our credit cards and stuff, um, I had the plan all mapped out, like it's going to take this many months. And I was somewhere from whatever, 36 to 40 something, like three or four years basically. And I had it all planned out, um, based on how much income we had, all this stuff. And, uh, and we were still giving, we were, I think tithing, giving 10% or something at that point. And I, I felt committed to that. But then Linda comes to me one day and again, like she's just the, you know, all fired up, just like do whatever. And she's like, you know what? I'm angry about our debt. I think we should give more. I feel like we should start giving more, whatever. And it just feels like that's the thing we should do. And I'm like, 
and I'm trying to get this debt paid off. This is going to take us in the opposite direction because we're not going to have enough money to pay off this debt anymore because we're giving it all away, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and I remember like being really nervous about that, but she felt really strong about it. And I'm like, all right, let's just do this. So we ended up doing that. We ended up paying off that debt, um, like two years faster than I had planned after we had increased our giving while paying off our debt. So it was just another one of those examples of this doesn't make any sense by, you know, normal math standards, but it was something where I think God kind of honored that generosity and, um, you know, and whatever all that was, you know. What are some of the excuses you've heard against giving? Because I, I can come up with a whole bunch of them, but I'm curious how to go from a person who doesn't give to become someone who does give. Like, how do you, yeah. how do, you do it? Yeah, I mean... Yeah, and there, there's all yeah, there's a million excuses. I mean, I think we both know a lot of them, but I think it's okay to start small. You know, I think that's what uh, you know because like what we do, this is just what you know we feel like God has called us to do, and it's like I don't, I'm not putting this on anyone else. Uh, I don't. I'm just saying this is what we've done, but we've also grown into this. But one of the things that we challenge people to do at the end of the book is what I call the one percent challenge, and that I have never met anyone who took one percent of their income and did something with it kind of automatically took it out. And so in this case, let's take giving, you know, so start giving 1% of your income. I've never met anyone who said, man, I really felt that. Like I really need to cut off on that 1%. You know, and so whether it's saving for retirement, whether it's giving, whatever, any 1%, like I've never met anyone who's done that, who just said that was too painful. I can't do that. In 99 times out of 100, people say, wow, I didn't even feel it. <laughs> and so, and like I said, we started doing this at age 31 for me. I'm now 41. I've never felt a difference. So we just increased our giving by 10%. And I didn't feel any difference over the last decade because it's been these 1% increments. And so I think that's a great way for anyone to start. Um, and I'll add to that, just making this super practical. Like what I would do if I were just starting now from you know ground zero is create a account, a separate account. We call it our seed account, which is an account that we created where we just funnel money to it each month that is no longer ours, as soon as it goes into that account, it's used specifically for giving. And so um, any giving situation, if a GoFundMe from someone we know pops up, like that's where that money is sitting right there, ready to be given. And uh, and that's been really, really fun. And so what I would do is take 1%, automatically send it to that account, you know, once a month, have that thing start filling up. And then something pops up where it's like, oh, wow, I'd love to give to that. And the money's sitting right there and you just do it. And it makes it so easy and it's so fun. How quickly does that 1% become 2% because you start to feel how amazing that is? I remember when I started yeah. my 401k, my early 20s, I just automatically had it go up 1% each year. And I got like a 2 or 3% raise each year. So it was like, I never noticed a difference. But by the time I was retiring from Best Buy, I was given a good chunk of money yeah. into my yeah. retirement. And yeah. I didn't really feel it, like you said. Yeah. So I can see that that could work for me. And it's easier to stomach than saying, hey, I'm going to go from zero to, to 20 or zero yep. to 10 or zero to five. And I'll be, that's to where I'm going to pull out a spreadsheet and go, wait, that's this much money? Like, yep. Yep. Uh, so yeah. No, that's so true. <laughs> and then uh, changing gears completely. I feel like for me, a lot of what motivates me potentially, money doesn't really mean much to me, but I compare myself to others a lot. Like this person's doing this. This person has this many podcast listeners. This person's going here. This person's doing that. How, like, 
I feel like for a lot of what you're doing and outlining in this book, you have to kind of lay that down yeah. because you're not going to be able to compare yourself with others when you're living completely differently. How do you yeah. how do you do that? Yeah, it's interesting you say that. I mean, because this has always been a struggle for me too. In so many areas, I'm you know a three on the enneagram and just a little bit of an achiever and. Yeah, I just have a natural tendency to compare myself with others, which you and I both know is a terrible idea. Like very little good comes out of that. There's a little bit of spurring you on, but a whole lot of, you know, self-defeating whatever stuff that comes out of that. And a lot of jealousy. It's like if a friend of mine, or not even a friend, just a podcast that I pay attention to gets a guest, I'm like, oh, why did they get that guest and not me? Like when I'm in that comparison mindset, it's horrible. Yeah. Yeah, just not much good comes out of it. But but yeah, but I think for us, like the thing that I found to be really helpful with this is that, you know, in terms of us setting goals, financial goals, like for a long time, like my goal was just to increase my net worth. It's like, that's the thing. It's like, I just want to have a bigger net worth and just know I'm making financial progress and just continue to change that metric. But that like led me to more of this comparison stuff. Whereas once we changed it to like, we're talking about our net given, which is the number that is our highest, um, most valuable metric that we track now, which is a running total of the total amount that we've given. And so that becomes our highest priority now. And by doing that, it gets us out of the rat race or the, the keeping up with the Joneses thing. And it gets us running a completely different race where it's like, we're not even in the same game. And so therefore, there's less of a compare or less of a tendency for me to compare myself. And that has been really liberating. Uh, you know what I mean? I absolutely love that. You just nailed it. It's like you're speaking to me. And so I hope the other folks listening are, are hearing that, that that metric is a metric for a completely different ball game. Yeah. If you're tracking yeah. that, the Joneses don't even matter anymore. Yeah, exactly. And I, when you were talking about um, eternal treasures, I had this thing flash into my mind. We, we love the word beyond. We're like beyond burgers, beyond training, beyond yeah. whatever. I was like, well, this is beyond 401k. Like this yeah. is, there's 401k for earthly treasures. This is yeah. next level 401k. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> yep. The other thing I wrote down and put a star next to from your book was, I, I basically, this is like a counseling session for me, which is fine. Great. Um, is uh, saying no to the flesh. And I loved how you quoted in the book when Jesus was in the desert, because um, there was three different temptations that Satan used against Jesus in the desert. And one of them was, I think it was, throw, like, throw yourself down from here and like, let's see if he commands his angels to save you. And he's like, oh, don't, don't, put, don't put the Lord your God to the to test or something yeah. Yeah. like that. But have you, how have you made that a point of saying no to the flesh? I would say, you know, I think one of the greatest um, antidotes to selfishness is just giving. Like, it's just the simplest thing that has always been really, really helpful. And within that, like, I, yeah, I still want stuff. Like, I think sometimes people, you know, I, I've talked to some people, it's like, whoa, you give 40% of your income away and just have this, uh, maybe think more of me and Linda because of that. And it's like... Listen, we have all the same temptations. Like, um, we still struggle wanting more. We still like have all those same things. But the reason that we, I think, lean into giving the percentage that we do is because it helps offset that and it helps reduce 
those temptations that are there. And to be honest, like I said, like this framework for us of giving our age has worked out to just be just the right amount of tension. We still have enough, you know, to be able to take care of our kids and pay our bills and live in a nice house and go on vacation and and do a lot of stuff. But it also um, doesn't provide too much opportunity for um, just getting to the point of being foolish with money. Like there was a point where I reached with my income where like if I took an honest look at how I was spending my money, it's like, I was never saying no to anything because there was just a good amount of money in the bank. And, you know, and maybe not buying a yacht or something, but there was no thing that I could think of on Amazon that I ever paused because it's like I just instantly bought it. And that you just get weak when you never have to say no. And so, um, so for us, like I just found it to be so much more helpful when there's a little bit of tension there. And it's like occasionally I might have to save up for something that costs whatever, a little bit of money. And I think that's just good to have that tension. When when we were on our paying off debt journey, that tension was, well, you've got all this money you're putting towards paying down debt. So it was really easy. Like, oh, I'm, I can't buy that right now, even though we have the income because I'm paying down this thing from before. Yeah. Um, and I think when you're debt free, you need that additional counterbalance to make you to slow you down, I guess. Yeah. Um, and to not be yeah. a glutton because that's, yeah. that's what I feel like it's so easy to do. It's like, Oh, I want that. I yeah. can have it tomorrow. Yep. Exactly. Transitioning completely into raising children that think about money different. How have you included your children on this type of stuff? Cause I yeah. think that's where we're really going to make a big difference is with our children and setting yeah. them up differently and thinking differently and letting that spread. Yeah. Do you guys have kids yet? No. No? Okay. Yeah. So we have a two-year-old, five-year-old, and an eight-year-old right now. And uh, and, and I'm figuring this out. But like you mentioned, I think it's so important because uh, I had a lot of stuff that I had to overcome based on what I learned growing up, you know, and and a lot of the belief patterns and things about money that, you know, that I got from classmates around me, their parents or my parents or friends or whatever. Like, you know, there's so many obstacles to how we're establishing beliefs about money. And so, yeah, I want to give my kids a head start and give them a leg up. Um, and the the best thing that we're doing right now, I mean, you know, on our two and five-year-old, it's like, I don't know, not much there. But with our eight-year-old, like we're really trying to let him see more of what we're doing. Um, you know, I'm not necessarily telling him whatever, how much we make each month or anything like that. But but I'm trying to, I'm looking for opportunities to bring him in to things that we're doing, decisions that we're making with our money um, and kind of like walking him through our thought process a little bit. Given this money here, it's like, all right, we have this much money right now that we could we could do this with it or we could do this with it. And in some cases, like we're talking about, like we've already structured a system, you know, to, like I said, in our seed account where we move money over to the seed account. And in our minds, it's no longer ours. It's going to be given to something else. Like, but... But I bring him into that conversation of, all right, we have this much money and, you know, but this is what we could do with it. We could go here. We could go here, but we're going to choose to do this. And this is why, because this is important to us. And we think this is going to help this person. And a lot of stuff we're talking about, but just as much as possible, trying to allow them to see it. Because I think there's far too many um, parents who, uh, I don't know, and maybe even for right reasons or, or thinking the right reasons, just shield their kids from all financial stuff. And I mean, I talk to people all the time who are like, we never talked about money in our house. And it's like, how are your kids going to learn if you never talk about money? Like, where are they going to learn it from? Are they going to learn this from the credit card companies? 
Are they going to learn it from Instagram influencers and how they're spending the money? Like we have to be talking to our kids about money. I agree. And we've set up a foundation. We don't have kids yet. We want to have kids. And we call it the family board meeting where monthly we sit down and we go through our finances and our goals and our plans. And then quarterly we have a big meeting and then we set new goals and new plans. And we look at our five-year goals and our 20-year goals and we assess how we're doing and we set put things on the calendar actually. And I can see kids just kind of sliding into that. And I don't remember what book this was. It was it was a book and they talked about giving, but they actually would vote as a family. Like they'd have this pool of money mm, that cool. was going to go somewhere and each family member could come to the table with some ideas of where that money could be given. Like they'd each bring two or three ideas. Yeah. And then the family would vote on five of them that they were going to give to as a family. And then they would all kind of like place their votes. And I just I'm think gonna steal that. That, I love that, that makes it so fun. Yeah. And it's a way just like, I just think that that is so cool. And you can only do that type of giving and have that type of a plan if you make some sacrifice today. Like you have to give up something today, but tomorrow can look so much better if yeah. you do that. And yeah. I think that's where it's so hard in the keeping up with the Joneses is I need to have that car today. I can't wait five years to own it and be able to pay for it cash. Yeah. But because you have it today, you'll never actually own it. it yeah. It's temporary. Well, yeah. And to that point, I think the thing that I have found so fascinating as I kind of started out on my journey of improving our finances or whatever, coming out of the mess that I was in to a better situation is that that situation of I just did the math. It looks like it's going to be five years until I can actually have this car if I save up by cash. Every time I did that, I was wrong. I, I grossly overestimated how long it would take. And the math was right, but there were always things that I couldn't factor in, um, whatever, income-wise or expense reduction-wise. Like Things just always happened that caused that to happen faster than I thought. And I think that's really important that most people don't consider because they do the math and they see it's going to be so long. I'm never going to be able to pay off this debt. I'm never going to be able to save up for that, whatever. And it's almost never, uh, it just never takes that long. The uh, most recent example I have of that is um, with my wife's student loans. Um, When we got married, she had uh, her student, she had just graduated. And so she had the student loans to pay. And I, I looked at it and I go, this is a, this is like a 15 year repayment. Like they're going to be taking, I don't know what it was, three, $400 a month for the next 15 years. I'm like, that's insane. That's so much money. Um, And then all this stuff happened where student loans were delayed or you didn't have to pay them back or temporarily and no interest is accruing. And I remember it was the beginning of 2020 when we wrote the last check to pay off her her student loans and she graduated in 2016. So it took four years. But it was like, well, should we pay? Like, is this the wrong thing to do? Like, are they going to forgive this? Like, we don't, they're not actually asking us to pay this right now. Like, are we crazy to be doing this? And I just remember we came to the conclusion that we took the, we took the debt. We are going to pay back the debt. If it, they get canceled someday, good for those people. I'm happy for them. But I wanted to be the type of person that like paid back what I owed. And, 
we haven't even thought about it for a second. Like we don't miss that money that we use to pay that at all. Yeah. Not one yeah. bit. That's awesome. I mean, yeah, I applaud you for that because I don't think most people think that way. I think the world's a whole lot better when people do think that way. So that's awesome. I try to talk about money on my show and because it, as you said, it doesn't get talked about and there's just yeah. not enough good information. It's all, most of the information that's good is hard to find a lot of times. Yeah. When you were going through this journey, who were you listening to? Like, where were you learning differently? Because if you didn't get it from your parents, where do you get it from? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, a lot of places. I mean, but I, so when I kind of started this journey, I mean, podcasts weren't really a thing. Um, the YouTube, I guess, maybe existed at that point and had Charlie bit my finger and cat videos on it or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and so for me, it was mostly books at that point and magazines. I was reading a handful of magazines. Um, but, you know, I've, I've, I'm a lifelong learner. Like, I've continued to read o over the years and watch YouTube and listen to podcasts and all this stuff. But, you know, honestly, like I said, like, the Bible has a lot of common sense, deep wisdom in it that, like, I just found to be so fascinating, um, you know, and, and that's really, really been interesting. And uh, just allowing that to kind of, uh, viewing everything through that lens. And so... Oftentimes, like I'll be reading a book from somebody who we don't 100% agree on everything and some of their approach, but I'll, you know, pair it with what I'm reading in the Bible and, um, and just allow those two to work together. And that's been really, really helpful. But yeah, I mean, I, I remember the first book that kind of changed everything for me was uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, in which, you know, I don't agree with everything with Kiyosaki, but there's a lot I took from that book that I found really helpful. And I think fundamentally, um, it just got me thinking about money and thinking about my mindset a little bit differently, um, you know. And so, yeah, there's a bunch of books over the years, but I don't know. What, what have you really liked? You've read a bunch, right? I resonate with the Ramsey Solutions. I think you said you're in Nashville. Their, yep. their content is great. Um, I, I've read a lot of his books and Susie Orman's book and Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Yep. Um, just a, I read Kiplinger's magazine. Yep. Um, just some personal finance blogs. I think my only gripe against like some of that is do a good enough job outlining what you did an excellent job of, of like give up this today so you can do this tomorrow. And here's how you can like get there quicker as far as like increasing the income component. Like I love like the whole rice and beans, live below your means and sacrifice and cut from your budget. But like, there has to be like the positive side of the abundance side of improving your income and the blessings that can come and all this other stuff. And, and that's otherwise like, it's not going to be a very fun trip. Like it's, just, it's not like you're not going to sell anyone to take that roller coaster ride. You yeah. Know? And there's only so far down you can go. Like I'm all for spending wisely and cutting, but there's only so much savings that you can save. And like we were talking about at the beginning, like, but the upside potential is unlimited. There's no limit to how much more you can increase your income. And I just don't think enough people think about that. Um, and so it makes sense, you know, whatever. While you're spending hours each week cutting coupons, and again, nothing wrong with that, uh, it makes sense to spend some time thinking about how you can improve your career and how you can advance yourself or how you can pick up a side hustle or whatever the thing might be. Uh, because there's a lot more opportunity there. 100. Yeah. In that time, uh, uh, trimming another $7 a week off your budget, you could go and teach tennis lessons or mow yep. some lawns or coach someone on piano or 
look at your skills index and monetize something in some way. And that is addicting. When you realize you can get paid to do something you would do for free, it almost feels like cheating. It it kind of feels like cheating. It doesn't feel right. Yeah, 100%. One other thing from the book, and then I'm curious about growing your blog and if you maybe have any tips for for aspiring podcasters. There's a lot of them that listen to my show. But this day of Sabbath, I... It was kind of a small mention in your book, but I think a huge, huge component of this is it. You didn't even mention this, I don't think, but it's like it's almost like laying down one income-producing day per week, just like throwing that away too. Yeah. And like when if you were just maxim trying to maximize income, you'd be like, oh, work every day. Why would you take a yeah. day off? Yeah. So like, what does the Sabbath day mean to you? And like, why? Like, why yeah. not just work every day? Yeah. So yeah, that chapter uh, almost got cut from the book because I kind of felt like I kind of felt like it wasn't relevant, but our editor really liked it and she thought it was really strong. So I'm like, all right, we'll leave it in. We yeah, we ended up writing like a hundred thousand pages, and then this thing got they wanted it down to sixty five thousand. So it's like we cut a lot of stuff from the book. So are you going to put it all online to download? Well, we have like for pre orders for the book right now. We're actually doing we're giving away one of the chapters that I think was really strong that got cut. It's like a secret chapter. Okay. And a lot of it will probably find its way into the next book um, because yeah, we, I feel like a lot of it's just good content, but it's like they had to get it down to 65,000 words. All right. One of my businesses is book publishing and um, Ben Greenfield wrote the book Boundless and it ended up being uh-huh. 629 pages. And Woo. our publisher wanted to put it into three volumes and we're like, no, yeah. we're putting this into one book. We want it to be like the yeah. end all be all book of health. So we had 400 pages we Woo. cut from that book. And what we ended up doing was just put it all on that website. And we said in the book, like, hey, there's like an entire, I don't know, third of this book missing. (laughs) Like, go (laughs) and get it. And we ended up, we got tens of thousands of people who went to go get the rest of that. I'm like, man, you guys, this 629 pages would have kept you busy for a decade. You want more? (laughs) Yeah. That's so great. my encouragement right, is good tip. Any, get it out there because yeah. I know me, like I finished your book in three sittings. I want more. And so I would definitely go and opt in or whatever great. I had to do to get the rest. <laughs> awesome. Well, that's, that's a good tip. Um, but, I, but the Sabbath, I, yeah. I, I call Sundays screenless Sundays. And initially it was like, I'm going to just... Not, I'm going to screen less on Sundays. I'm going to go less on my computers, less on my phones, less on the TV and spend more time outside, more time reading, more time socializing with people. Love it. And then it turned into like, hey, can I just make Sundays like turn the internet off in the house and like have no internet, no screens and go Love completely that. screenless? And it changed my life. So I'm good. curious how your Sabbath has helped you, what you like to do. Like, what do you like to do on Sundays? If it's, yeah. if Sunday's even your Sabbath day, I'm not sure. Yeah. But. Yeah, so we do Sundays or Sabbath day. But uh, yeah, I kind of like how I was talking before about the thing about having a spouse who views money differently than you. And, you know, so before, again, like I felt like Linda was wrong. <laughs> like my method of I know the math, like my way is right. And I kind of had that same thing with Sabbath. And, you know, to me, it's like, all right, this doesn't make any sense. I have a whole extra day. I have all these hours that I can use to do more work, to mm-hmm. check email, to blah, blah, blah. That makes sense. That, that I, I can add that up. That makes sense that I'm going to get further in my business if I do that. Um, and I found just kind of the opposite thing where it's like, 
if I trust that this thing that God created for my benefit, you know, um, this idea, and if I kind of, as an act of faith, choose to not work, putting my trust in him, that uh, A, he's going to take care of the business and all the different things and whatever that opportunity that comes in on Sunday, like all that stuff, um, I can trust him in that. And we found that to just be working out so well for us. Uh, and on top of it, like, you know, I don't have as quantitative of a breakdown as like maybe the uh, giving thing in the chart, you know, but but anecdotally, like we just feel like we've seen that play out over and over again. And and even if we didn't, like, I think there's an aspect of it where it's like, I think we'll look back and be able to say we lived a better life, a more peaceful life, uh, a more balanced life because we chose to do that. And And I think that's one of those things where God and his wisdom and how he set things up where he's just like, Trust me. I know it seems like you have to do everything all the time, but trust me, I set this out for you to rest once a week. Like, just take it, enjoy it. It's for your benefit. Um, and you're going to do better while you do that. And so, um, so yeah, it's just been something that we've integrated into our lives in terms of what it looks like. Uh, for me, oftentimes, and it sounds a little bit like you, uh, my work is at a screen. Like I'm not somebody who digs ditches all day long. Um, and so for me, I kind of want to do the opposite. And so that, like, I like getting out in the garden or being on a hike or whatever, like just being outside doing something that might be work for someone else. You know, I'm like me digging in the garden actually feels like not work. And so I will lean into that, you know, but, uh, but I do my best and it's like, and I'm not, you know, I, I mess up at this and fail at this just as much as anyone else, but I do my best to just really rest and enjoy those days, spend them with my family, uh, eliminate my to-do list and especially do no work um, and really just try to enjoy God's blessings and and make it a day like that. I think that it when you decide like, hey, I'm going to take this day off, everything is going to go wrong on the first couple. Like it's like this, the, the I, I, I really like C.S. Lewis's book, um, the screw tape letters where it's like, oh, yeah. he's about to like figure out the secret. We need to like make it so he's never going to try to take a Sunday off again. Like yep. his email, he's going to look on Monday and he's had all these missing leads of all this money he could have made. You know, yep. this project fell through the cracks. The website was down for the entire day. Like, let's just, you know, like make it a losing battle. But in the long run, you dedicate that Sunday and Monday, man, you can work twice as hard on Monday after yeah. you rested. I love what you said about you're on a screen all day. I'm on a screen all day, too. And so your Sabbath should reflect the opposite of your work week. So if you are a creative person and you're on a screen all the time writing and speaking and doing all this stuff, hey, maybe you should take up carving or sewing or a garden. But if you're a person who's out working out in, in a garden or you're using your hands a lot, you should try to write poetry or, or write music or like the complete opposite idea on Sabbath yeah. and, and really feel the full beauty of creation. And, um, yeah, I, love I love that. that. I, I'm glad you didn't cut that chapter because I think it's, it, it ties in really well with what you're all about. And yeah. it's, you're giving one day a week. It's a different type of giving, yeah. It's a different type of giving, definitely. Yeah, the editor thought the same thing, so you guys are right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so we've been talking a lot about your book, and I do want to give you a chance to promote your blog and your book, which is coming out on April 26th. 
um, and we'll put notes to everything that we talked about, um, including um, the books and, and, and Die With Zero and a lot of other resources and some of the resources that were in the book over at quandall.com slash seed time. That's quandall.com slash seed time, S-E-E-D time. Um, but I am curious, from someone who started this project in 2007, 2008, was able to keep with it. What advice would you give to like a to someone like me who's in my first year of podcasting, second yeah. year of blogging, and as far as all the things I do, it brings me by far the most joy. The financial amount from it is almost nothing, yeah. but it brings so much joy. And on that 20-year plan I told you about when I was envisioning my life in 20 years, I was envisioning being able to do this sort of stuff full-time, speaking, yeah. writing, podcasting, yeah. blogging. How do you go from where I'm at to there? Like, how do you do it? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think you know this, like everybody's journey is different. Um, but, you know, they're, they're, like I think the fact that you're doing what you love is so, so important, so powerful. Um, that's a big component. Uh, and my encouragement would be to, man, in, in, all of the, in all of business right now, because all business is online business at this point, uh, there's so many opportunities and things that you can do. And there's so many things that it's like, oh, I feel like I need to do this. Or there's a new social platform here and I need to do this. And I probably just keep you spinning, keep your head spinning. And one of the things I've fought really, really hard to do, still not nearly as good at as I want to be, is um, just being ruthless about focus on focusing on just the one or two things that that really get you where you want to go. Okay. And so and so one of the questions I'm constantly asking myself is like, what do I enjoy the most? What is, what are the tasks that I'm doing? Um, whatever, whether that's writing a blog post, writing a book, uh, podcast, creating videos for YouTube, like whatever, like what are the things that I'm doing that I love doing this and I can just do this all day long? You know, once I identify some of those things, like just continuing to be creative and research and just in, in identifying what's working and what's not working on how we can kind of monetize that better or more or whatever. And so in the case of a podcast, like that's something where it's like, all right, if podcasting is a thing, if this is a thing that I want to be doing for the next, you know, five, 10 years, it's like, all right, how can I find out how other people have just monetized this really well, how they've grown their audience, how, you know, and so that's what I would then kind of obsessively be focusing on learning, you know, and I'm, I'm sure you're probably already doing this, but that's my encouragement is just continuing to do that because you have such an advantage when you're running in the direction of something that you love and you get so much joy and value out of versus doing something where it's like, I feel like I have to do this because this is what online business is these days. Like that is effort that you're, you're never going to measure up to the people who love that stuff. You know, so whatever, if that's whatever posting on Instagram or something like that, if, like, if that's a thing that's like, I hate doing this, but I feel like I need to do it. Like you're never going to beat out the people who that's what they obsess and love about. Now, on the other hand, if you love podcasting, you love doing that, um, you have such an advantage over the whatever the businesses or the bloggers who are like, I feel like I need to start a podcast because everybody does. You know, it's like you have an advantage in that arena. And so you need to run that way as much as you can. And there are people making money. So there is a way to do it. You know, but you just have to keep fighting until you nail it down. I love that. And do you recommend hiring people? Like you said, Instagram. I hate posting on Instagram. I just feel like it's a chore. Like last time I was taking a picture of this uh, charcuterie board my wife made. I'm like, oh, and I kept moving the board around. And I'm like, I just want to eat this. I don't care about the picture. Like, (laughs) does anyone even care? And I'm like, this is not for me. 
But do you hire people for those types of things you don't love, but you know, like they're an integral part of your business? Or do you just not do them at all? Like, how do you discern that? I think it could work either way. I've seen people do both. Um, uh, now, I will say this. I mean, specifically with social media, I think it's hard to hire that well um, because I think it's really easy to hire somebody who's just mediocre. And it's like you're just kind of adding to the noise. And it's like, I don't know. Is that is this really moving the needle in anything I care about? Is it better than not doing it at all? Like, I don't know. Like, these are questions I haven't figured out myself. Um, and then there are certain things where it's like, all right, if I can hire somebody here strategically who can do this, um, and do it well, it's like, all right, this helps move the needle in this direction. So those are tough problems to solve that I think need to be solved on a case-by-case basis. But um, sometimes the answer is yes, sometimes it's no. And then the last question on this entrepreneurial front, and there's a lot of entrepreneurs that listen to to the show. Going from a hobby to perfect, like being a professional and it being a business, I think that's a, you have to make that switch somewhere for you to ever truly be successful. Like for you, you were making $100 a month, I remember when I got my first Amazon Associates check for like $4 off a book review I wrote and some people bought the book. I'm like, this is great. Like, this is amazing. (laughs) Yeah. But it's not going to, you know, feed my family. Do you have to switch from hobby to a profession earlier? Like, you do you, I almost feel like you got to do it before you're ready. Like, what do you think about that? Uh, Well, help me understand. What do you mean? um, I consider like my podcast. I take it very seriously, but it's a hobby. It's not generating any meaningful money. It's just something I love to do. Yeah. To to seriously compete in the podcasting realm, I'm going to need to make it a profession. Like I'm going to need to take it more seriously and treat it more like work in a way. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean that that I think that was part of for me like what shifted in that once I got laid off like I, because before that I was working probably five to ten hours a week on my blog. I mean, it sounds similar enough to what you're doing. Whereas, like, it was a part time thing for me. I had another job, um, but once I got laid off, it's like this is it. This is where I put all of my focus, all of my energy, and you know. And I think there were a variety of factors that helped kind of get that thing lifted and off the ground, but the end of the day, like that was a big part of it. You know, I greatly increased not only the time I spent on it, but the focused mental energy on it as well. Yeah. So I I think there's no doubt that you're at an advantage when you can, you know, put a full-time energy into it, even if you can't put the hours into it, but just the, you know, yeah, in my case too, it was like, I got a ticking clock. Like I'm going to run out of money in six or nine months. And so it's like, what do I have to do to get this thing up to a full-time income? And I think asking those questions, uh, yeah, it just stretches you, you know, because we find answers to the questions that we're asking. And so, you know, if that's the thing for you, it's like, yeah, let's set a clock. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's a great point. And I'm just so grateful for our conversation here. And I'm curious, where can we learn more about you? And where can folks go and, and, and purchase or pre-order this book? And um, if you have any last minute words for us. Sure. Yeah. So yeah, if it's before, if you're listening before April 26th, um, we have it at uh, simplemoneybook.com and you can do pre-order, get the pre-order bonuses there. One of them is what you were talking about, um, the extra chapter that we pulled out that wasn't able to fit into the book. Uh, so simplemoneybook.com is where the books are or anywhere else. You can buy it anywhere else. And then one other thing I want to just mention for anybody who's like, yeah, I'm not sure about the book. Like, I just want to get like as much of this into people's hands as possible. So I pulled out three out of three of the key chapters in here, like the most valuable kind of first steps to kind of change in your financial life. And I put it in a three day challenge where people can go and just 
grab that, sign up for that email. We send it to you each day and it via email. And it's a great way to like kind of take a sneak peek at the book, see if you like it, then you can decide to buy it. Um, and if not, like, great, it'll help you regardless. But, but that website is just three day money challenge.com. You can just is go that the number three that. or do you either way, both of them should go there. Three day money challenge. Okay. I'll make sure that's in the show notes. And then what about your blog? Are you, are you, are you still publishing a lot of information there too? If, if, yeah. you're, if you get, if you get the book, where do you go even deeper with you? Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, we have a handful of courses. That's what we've, that's kind of our next step at this point. Like the blog is still active-ish, but to be honest, we've spent so much time on the book that we just haven't been writing that much over the last few years. Um, but yeah, but like we have a handful of courses that are, I think, good next steps beyond the book. I would recommend most people start with the book if they're going to start with something, though. Great. Well, definitely, we'll we'll check that out. And like I said, we'll put links to all this at quandall.com slash seed time. And I'm just so grateful that you are putting this good information out there. And it will definitely change my life. I'm going to make some commitments, increased commitments for giving. And maybe I'll, I'll send you a note of what those are. And yeah, I love um, that. you can hold me accountable. But I, I think uh, this, is, this is a great book. And I think you did a great job. Man, I really appreciate it. Um, and I love what you're doing, man. I think you got a great show. And keep up the good work. Thanks for listening to this episode of The James Quandall. The show notes for this episode and other goodies can be found at quandall.com. Are you enjoying the show? If you are, please subscribe and leave a review. I may end up reading your review live on the review and telling your friends about the show is the best way to support me and help the show. See you next time. Yeah.